cancer industry specifically. It has changed dramatically. The field of biophotonics was just getting started. The first instrument that I bought was a microwave spectrum analyzer. It's time to shed light on our universe. This is All Things Photonics, a podcast about the physical science of light. Join us as we explore the latest in lasers, optics, spectroscopy, and microscopy. Each episode, you'll hear from leading voices from across the photonics landscape. We're brought to you by Photonics Media. This is Associate Editor Joel Williams. Here are this week's top stories. Researchers from Nagoya University and the Technical University of Darmstadt developed a method to quantitatively study the effect of light on nanoscale mechanical properties of crystalline materials such as thin wafer semiconductors. This method, referred to as photoindentation, uses a tiny pointed probe to indent the material while it is illuminated by a light source to observe the effect of light at different wavelengths on dislocation nucleation and mobility. A transparent glass display with a high white light contrast ratio is able to smoothly transition through a broad spectrum of color when stimulated with electricity. The technology, developed by researchers at Jilin University, overcomes hurdles that face existing electrochromic devices by capitalizing on the interactions between metal ions and ligands. Researchers from the University of Technology, Sydney, developed a technique based on principles of optical tweezing to allow them to manipulate particles possessing the same refractive properties as those of the background environment in a given setting. The method, shown as a proof of concept, dopes nanocrystals with rare earth metal ions and uses less energy to trap nanoparticles without sacrificing efficiency. A microcomb developed by researchers from Chalmers University of Technology has the potential to herald significant advances in a variety of technologies spanning metrology and optical communication. The design, which uses two microresonators, is coherent, tunable, and reproducible, and has up to 10 times higher net conversion efficiency than current state-of-the-art devices. And finally, researchers from Tomsk Polytechnic University, along with international collaborators, have formulated a method allowing for a laser-driven integration of metals into polymers to form electrically conductive composites. The method uses laser pulses to irradiate aluminum nanoparticles on polyethylene terephthalate substrates to form electrically conductive composites. The work has implications for flexible electronics. Up next, news editor Jake Saltzman is joined by Fulbright scholar and former president of the Optical Society, Ursula Gibson. Later, Jake speaks with Nick Harris, founder and CEO of Light Matter. I'm Joel Williams, and you're listening to All Things Photonics. Today's episode is sponsored by Comsol the leading developer of multi-physics simulation software, which includes tools for building and deploying simulation apps. Comsol's wave and ray optics capabilities are used for modeling, imaging, and sensing in consumer electronics and biotechnology, information processing and communication systems, and more. See how the Comsol software fits your optical analysis needs at www.comsol.com.
We're joined today on All Things Photonics by Dr. Ursula Gibson. Dr. Gibson is a Fulbright Scholar, receiving her scholarship in 2008, and she has held visiting positions around the world at the U.S. Air Force Academy, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, Topper University of Technology in Finland, Chalmers University in Sweden, and the University of Queensland in Australia. She served as president of the Optical Society in 2019, and she joins us today from the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, where she serves as a professor of physics. Hello, Ursula. Hi. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. This is going to be interesting. I hope so. Uh, and I wanted to start off, in, in the intro, we mentioned some of the, uh, the, the prestigious locations that have hosted you and where your work has commenced from. So I want to ask you right off the bat about geography and, and the ability to work in so many distinct settings and environments. How has that influenced your work uh, through your career? I think that all the different places that I have been is perhaps a genetic thing that my parents had both traveled quite a bit while even when they were young, and they took us when they went on sabbatical. We went to different countries in Europe and, and even went to the U.S. once. And um, I think it sort of rubbed off on me. But, you know, how has it um, affected my work? I think that the exposure to and appreciation for different cultures, it's really broadened my understanding of how many different ways there are to contribute to science. You know, so brilliance is just one vein of what is needed. Meticulous follow-up, unconventional approaches, different blends of formalism and intuition, they can all combine. And so I, I think the sort of social exposure to different cultures may perhaps um, realize how important it is to be open to different cultures within science. Was the desire to live and work in, in so many different locations, and we're not just here, we're not just talking North America and Europe. We, we mentioned Australia. Uh, among other locations. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if the desire to, to travel was a, a conscious identification for you, uh, or was it something that perhaps arose um, organically? Much more organic than planned. I, you know, I really wouldn't say that the breadth of my travels was by design. Um, most of it was due to, you know, willingness to explore. An opportunity would come up and I'd go, yes, before I thought about it, and then find myself in a fabulous environment, um, learning new things and uh, meeting new people. And I have to say that one of the leading things has been the kindness of colleagues with their invitation to let me come visit. Much of our conversation uh, today, uh, I'm sure, will um, involve optical fibers uh, and hollow core optical fibers uh, and a lot of the areas in which technology uh, is moving rapidly. The fiber-dependent method that you developed for solar energy-generated electricity supports numerous applications, and it's even allowed you to form a company for uh, the manufacture of silicon solar cell threads. Can you give us a, a nuts and bolts of that method? Yeah, so um, I would love to claim responsibility for it, but the actual how to make the fibers was something that came out of uh, Clemson University, John Pilato's group, that they had learned how to take silicon, put it into a glass matrix, and draw it into fiber form, where you can decide how big it's going to be in diameter. Now, when they did that, they had some problems, and my, my group was actually able to solve one of the problems that they'd had. So it's really been a collaboration, you know, that um, we had this little technique and we went, visited them and said, hey, could you try this? And they're like, oh, wow, we'd love to try that. And we've been working together ever since. But the, the technique really is that you take a conventional glass preform of the sort that's used to make 
optical fibers. But instead of depositing a layer of glass that has a near uh, refractive index that's close to what the outside is, you put a lump of semiconductor in the middle and you take it up to temperature where the semiconductor melts. But then when you draw the glass down, the semiconductor is forced. It's as if the glass is a crucible, and it draws the silicon down into a very fine thread. We've drawn fibers directly with cores down to just a few microns. But for the solar cells, you want something that absorbs more. So they also draw what they call cane, which might have a glass outer diameter of a millimeter or so, and then an inner core about a tenth of that. You mentioned how your work with semiconductor core optical fibers has opened doors for you to work uh, in numerous areas and applications beyond solar cells and photovoltaics, for example. What are some of those applications that uh, your current work is exploring? Again, I have to acknowledge colleagues um, that Anna Peacock's group at Southampton has been doing incredible work on the, the optical front. They've looked at nonlinear optics, infrared continuum generation, uh, four-wave mixing, um, all sorts of exciting things. And um, if I've understood it correctly, there's some ideas bouncing around for generating entangled photon pairs. So kind of getting to the quantum arena. And recently, I was ex- I was contacted by some researchers in the gravity wave community. The next generation of interferometers is being planned around cryogenic mirrors, and single crystal silicon is one of the top candidates for how you suspend these. And that is something they saw one of my um, papers and thought, hey, maybe we should talk. And so I was able to get a short experience in that community at one of their conferences. And wow, what an eye opener. You know, that planning for the next gravity wave interferometer is a huge endeavor. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. We're speaking with Dr. Ursula Gibson here on all things photonics. Uh, let's, let's take a, a step back, and I want to ask you about your introduction to optics. Uh, who or what led you to the field? Again, maybe a, a trifle of serendipity. I started out my undergraduate uh, research experience in superconductivity, and then I had an opportunity to go to Bell Labs, but I ended up in my first year there working with somebody, um, Eric Ippen. Um, who introduced me to sort of optical material properties, and I, I got quite interested in it. And so when I went on to grad school, uh, my advisor had parallel programs, if you can believe it, this in superconductivity and in solar energy materials. And um, I started out thinking I was going to do the superconductivity thing, but I switched to the optical materials, and I've um, enjoyed it ever since. Your career has spanned not only uh, various and vast locations, but also various and vast technologies. At this point now, uh, you talk about interferometry, you talk about quantum. Uh, do you continue to be surprised and amazed by some of the, the, the connections, that some of the applications that have been on your radar for, for decades or are now finding new uh, homes, uh, for lack of a better term, and new applications? You know, I have this sort of rule of thumb that technology goes in cycles of a sort that, you know, somebody um, has an idea and uh, they can't quite do it because the technology isn't in place, perhaps. And But they talk about the idea. And then 40 years later, somebody else needs that for something else. And so there's this beautiful cycle of sort of materials development and technology development. So I'm not 
overall surprised that there are cool new things happening, but um, I have to say it's a lifelong enjoyment of how it can just continue to be new and exciting. And through the course of your career, you've been able to no doubt witness firsthand the, the comings and, and also the goings of many trends in many areas. In terms of 2D materials, um, the photonics community's infatuation with graphene, um, for example, seems to have given way to silicon. And we've had conversations on the podcast with McCall Lipson and others about the state of silicon photonics. How has the evolution of materials influenced your areas of interest? In some way, I think I have, you know, I was around when high TC superconductors sort of flattened the, the scientific community. There was um, the Woodstock of physics where everybody went. And um, I got a real taste of the excitement therein. But also the sort of conservatism that came afterwards when the, it really didn't quite play into as big a thing as people expected. And when fullerenes came along, I said, uh-uh, not for me, you know, not going near it. And I hate to say it, but graphene has been another of those things where there is a community that is tied directly to it. And I feel that as an outsider looking in, leaping into the fray is um, not my style. So I'm thrilled that silicon is coming back into play and very excited that some of the things that we're playing with in my lab, I think, will have an influence on 2D silicon photonics going forward. I have to ask, now that the door has opened itself here, what is going on in your lab? Oh, okay. So kind of all sorts of things. But um, we are learning to recrystallize these silicon fibers. So I guess I should step back a bit and say that we're working with semiconductor core fibers and have put a lot of effort into silicon. And silicon by itself is a little tricky because it wants to be polycrystalline. And so at least in the large sizes that you might like to deal with, um, you, you have to be a little clever about how to crystallize it. And one of the things that we found out is that by introducing another element, um, we can get a handle on um, the recrystallization of silicon over long distances. And um, we're working now with different material systems. Now that we've gotten into the alloy space, um, the periodic table is our playground. Look out. It's funny that we talk about um, not just silicon, but materials in this vein. It's something new for us. I, I, I'm cognizant of the fact that much of our Photonic Spectre magazine content really aims to appeal to uh, who we identify as the end users of photonic technologies. Uh, but in doing so, we can... Um, it omit the story of some of the research or, or even the manufacture of certain devices or components. I'll, I'll use the example in covering photovoltaics. We might be inclined to ask, well, what does an end user need to know before implementing this technology or this product? Uh, I want to ask you from your position in your research, um, what type of consideration are you giving to a potential end user? Is that even a consideration in the research stage? I fundamentally would like to make something that's useful. So when I write my proposal, I'm not kidding when I say that I think that this can be used for this, that, or the other. And, you know, so every program that I have has some sort of a goal, whether it's transmission of terahertz for potential surgery or medical diagnostic purposes, or whether it's making a light source inside a fiber you know, or a detector inside a fiber. There is an end user in mind. But at the same time, I recognize that if I commit myself to 
sort of being product oriented, that I may not take advantage of my true skills, which are more in sort of primary materials development and materials processing. I mentioned in the in the intro that um, your work with a, a fiber dependent method for solar energy generated electricity uh, has enabled you to to at least dabble in the uh, the industrial the production side of things. And this is a, a theme with many uh, of today's scientists working not just in research and academia but also um, in industry. And I'm curious how that position, being able to get some industry experience or familiarity, has, has helped grow or evolve your appreciation for the science? I think that probably the biggest impact has been to recognize how ignorant I am of the commercial world and and the importance of bringing together a diversified group to discuss this. That, you know, if you get a little knot of scientists together and talk about a product, um, maybe none of them has ever done anything in the commercial world. and And so, Broadening the network and connecting with people who have experience in tech transfer is incredibly important. And I've gained a real appreciation for not only the tech transfer people, but the incredible talents of the people who take a tech idea and launch a company. Wow, that's a big step. Much of your work, uh, especially recently, as we've discussed, has involved silicon and silicon core optical fibers. Uh, and we've talked about industry, and we've we've talked about um, devices and components and end users. Uh, I, I want to make sure we cover all our bases here and bring up the supply chain. What type of attention do you pay on the the research side uh, to the supply chain of some of the elements, materials, and components um, with which you work? I am a believer that what we are doing is actually a a really good potential route for solving, not solving, but at least limiting the arrival time of problems of that sort. So if we want to make a semiconductor device, we put the material into this glass form and then we draw it down into a fiber and we really don't throw away much of the material at all. And, you know, although our product is never going to be as fabulous as some of the things that can be made with vapor deposition technology, there's an awful lot, I think, that you can do with our technique where you're not spraying around the material and creating a huge recycling scenario. So I am optimistic that at least for some of the, the low-lying functions, we can move away from big single crystals, from vapor-based technology to something where it's much more local and is all encapsulated, less release into the environment, and sort of more efficient use of the materials. I'm an optimist, but you know that's what I that's what I hope. As the efficiency, the efficient use of materials, has that been a a theme in your research uh, for a long time? Uh, no, um, I mean I started out as a thin film technology person, and it, it really wasn't until I discovered that we could, you know, I wanted to study cylindrical silicon as a way to make solar cells. And then I found out that you could draw it as a fiber and I just, and I got hugely excited. But that was really me looking for the answer to a particular problem and then finding out that it had much bigger implications. What advances to, to optical fiber technology do you think are poised to take place in the near future? We'll, we'll say the next five to 10 years. I think that this business of unconventional cores in fibers is 
I mean, right now it's a fairly small community, but it's growing really quite fast. And I think that not only semiconductors, but some of these multi-material cores where they, you know, you, you if you want to make contact to a device that's in a fiber, you just draw a, a metal wire in parallel with the semiconductor, and then you can use a laser to connect the two wherever you want. And so I, I think that Using the the optical fiber as a vessel for materials processing, I mean, that's the core of my research. So, of course, I think it's going to be interesting. But I, I think also you're going to see a lot of longer wavelength applications. I, I don't think that it's unreasonable to believe that there will be local power transmission, that, you know, you can charge this, that, and the other um, locally using fibers to bring them the signal or a power signal as well as an information signal. Um, I think there's some really exciting stuff going on in sort of the equivalent of Anderson hopping, where you you have modes that can go for longer than you would expect because you make a semi-random material. I think the optical fibers are going to be huge for the quantum world too. So. You mentioned the quantum world, and it's something that we've not only on the podcast, but in our in our magazine, Photonics uh, Spectrum magazine, we often discuss how do we cover quantum. I'd like to get your thoughts, your perspective on quantum and the potential there. Uh, it seems to be one of those realms that sort of works its way into multifaceted research. Has that been the the experience for you? So far, I think my experience counts as limited, but um, when you consider that the material systems that you have to work with, the geometries that you have to work with, the processing that you have to work with, the theory that you have to work with, and experimental design. It's sort of on a smaller scale, the same sort of complexity as we see with the um, Einstein telescope, the next gravity wave interferometer, perhaps. I don't think they've been given the, the award yet, but they certainly got a proposal in. But, you know, that... We have found ourselves moving to projects where so many different skills are needed that whenever you talk about a big new initiative, you're really talking about involving many members of the community. Again, this this idea that you have to include um, all sorts of different expertise. How has the evolution of, of laser technology, that's another area we, uh, we have yet to discuss here today, uh, how has laser technology throughout the course of your career impacted your work? Well, you know, this I was talking about those 40-year cycles. <laughs> um, so it turns out that back, I don't know if it was 40 years, but, um, you know, I started out pretty early on. I was using a, an excimer laser for uh, making thin films, and I was using CO2 lasers to heat the substrates to cause uh, sort of annealing during the processing. And so, you know, the, these are things which have come back again. You know, the extra may, may be important for some of our next steps. Um, the CO2 lasers are huge for um, processing these fibers that we're making. And I think that the availability of lasers of different wavelengths for characterization, that, that's been huge. And also the fact that they're now operable by people who come from different fields. You know, that we can buy a fiber-coupled laser and a little controller, and then we can align that fiber and um, launch into these semiconductor core waveguides and do this without having a sort of three-year internship to learn how to run the laser. That they, they have become simple tools. 
I want to ask you about uh, OSA and your time as president of OSA in 2019 and uh, not being that far removed from um, your, your term as president. What are some of the, the lessons uh, the experience delivered in, and what also advice do you give to someone who might be an incoming president? Well, serving as president of OSA was a huge honor, and having the opportunity to connect with students and researchers around the globe was a real eye-opener. You know, to see the enthusiasm of optics professionals and students against the backdrop of incredibly varied conditions and opportunities, et cetera. And, you know, connecting with colleagues through society events has also broadened my perspective in terms of industries, needs, and, and going to rather a few more conferences than I typically had gone to in years prior. You know, it, it really brought home to me the um, incredible power of this community that is coordinated through the society. And, and to be sure, one of the, the, I don't know if missions is the right word, but one of the, the core values of OSA is globalization, this global community and broadening it. How has that expanded or advanced through your time in the field? I think that uh, sort of strangely enough, and I know that you know it's nicer to stay away from the topic, but the pandemic has actually um, had a big influence because the move to online meetings and webinars and events and so on has meant that people can connect if they're if they're willing to keep odd hours for a few days, they can attend a conference on the other side of the world with no visa requirements, no airfare, and, you know, participate meaningfully in an interaction. And, you know, I, I think that seeing the, the way that people have connected has been extraordinary. In looking back on the year 2020, amidst the challenges, the obstacles, the this is new attitude, how do you regard uh, the year from, from a science perspective uh, in, in terms of the progress that you and the community as a whole um, has been able to make? I, again, I, I said I'm an optimist and, and maybe I, I'm just um, very, very lucky, but I have been astounded at the enthusiasm, the keep it going, the positive attitude that I have encountered amongst my colleagues. And I think that there has been a real change of paradigm that, you know, the video conferencing was something which, gosh, I don't know, the late 60s or early 70s, they tried having these televisions that you could talk to and, and people went, oh, no, not doing that. But video conferencing has become socially acceptable and people are learning how to make and continue collaborative relationships through this new medium. And and I think that that is going to impact for a long time the productivity of of individuals going forward. I've seen a, you know people although there are interruptions in supply chains and uh, equipment repair service uh, is a little tricky these days. I've been really positively affected by how many people are out there and doing what they can and um, making do and moving forward. Dr. Ursula Gibson has been a, uh, our guest today on All Things Photonics. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. We 
often talk with our All Things Photonics guests about startups, spin-out companies stemming from high-level research that aim to solve topical bottlenecks in the optics and photonics space through a product or products. Startups are not exclusive to photonics, though they play a role of increased prominence in advancing innovation in our field. It's especially true in supercomputing, where beyond quantum, silicon photonics is entrenched in the progress of compute. The material presents distinct advantages in chip-to-chip communication. More than this, as our next guest will discuss, in the area of compute, silicon and silicon photonics are highly amenable to the ability to increase bandwidth and, frankly, make computers better. We're joined now by Nick Harris, founder and CEO of Light Matter, a photonic supercomputer company that has taken on that aforementioned challenge of making computers better. How are you doing, Nick? Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me. So you, um, your, your approach here uses light, silicon photonics to be exact, uh, and it's an approach that really does go beyond quantum. Uh, can you get into this problem of heat that you are, are so well-versed in, introduce and explain that problem, and, and talk to me about uh, why silicon uh, as opposed to quantum? So you hear a lot about Moore's law, and Moore's law describes um, that the number of transistors per unit area on a computer chip should double every 18 months. Uh, and there's a lot of companies out there trying to defend Moore's law and say it's not over. Um, so I'm here to tell you that they're right. It's not over. Uh, the real problem is that when you shrink a transistor, it has to get more energy efficient. Um, imagine you're holding a computer chip and every 18 months you double that number of transistors. If they don't get more efficient, the chip gets uh, hotter and hotter and hotter. So we've been in that situation for the past 15 years. The prediction that energy should drop with each node shrink is known as Denard scaling. Uh, and, and that's really the issue today. Um, so progress in computing and the performance of computer processors is really limited at this point by the ability of uh, computer chip companies to remove heat uh, using heat sinks, fans, water cooling, whatever techniques they can. So that's the bound that we've run into. And that's kind of the core problem for computers going forward. Um, and it, it kind of motivates research into next generation computing platforms like uh, this, the work we're doing with photonics for artificial intelligence and also uh, work in quantum computing. So you do have a bit of a quantum background, but it's not so much that that you're doing here with Light Matter. Uh, give me a, a rundown, a history uh, of how Light Matter came to be and what the focus of your work is now. Yeah, so um, I did my uh, PhD and, and a postdoc at MIT where I was working on building quantum computers using silicon photonics. Um, so there I was working on uh, generating single photons, which are the qubit for a photonic quantum computer, um, doing processing on those quantum states, those qubits, and then detecting them with superconducting single photon detectors. Um, so I spent a while doing that, and I think we were quite successful in demonstrating all of those components. Um, but what became clear to me is that it was a very challenging problem to scale up the number of photonic qubits and that there was some serious uh, work that needed to be done, not just straightforward engineering, but perhaps some fundamental theoretical breakthroughs. Um, and so uh, having really worked hard on that problem, I realized that, you know, I'd like to revisit quantum computing in about 10 or 15 years. And in the meantime, uh, let's look at some, some more near-term applications of this computing technology. Uh, and, and so that's kind of the story behind how Light Matter got started. 
you know, it's so key to to startups, you know, this consideration that once your feet are on the ground here, how can we be most practical and most efficient? How can we find the the nearest term, most immediate and best uses for our for our offerings, for our product? Uh, and for you, that does involve silicon. We've talked about it already. Um, and one of the things about silicon as a material is that it's so amenable to, to LIDAR, to sensing applications. Can you talk a little bit about why silicon and why that is the, the material of focus here for your work now? Yeah, um, it's really just about leveraging the infrastructure that uh, traditional electronics have built up. So there are literally trillions of dollars invested in foundries that build silicon chips. Um, it turns out that silicon is transparent in the same region as optical fibers, which are used for telecommunications. And you've got those, those two things together that make it a great platform for doing, you know, building optical systems, LIDAR sensing, computing like we're doing, and lots of other applications. So it's really just, you know, it's not the best material for doing uh, photonics, but it's one that's widely available, highly reliable from a manufacturing standpoint, very scalable and well understood. And, and I think those are the properties that make it the leader for doing uh, large scale photonic integration. When you talk about powering smart computing, there are all these algorithmic advances too um, that are that are certainly on your radar uh, and certainly pertinent. But one of the things that you mentioned here off camera, off out of recording, is that the, the CMOS architecture and the CMOS infrastructure has really been vital to silicon and increasing its its usability. How has that been so important to your work? Yeah, um, I would say that what we're doing is only possible because over the past uh, maybe five to ten years. Uh, silicon photonics processing in standard CMOS foundries has become mainstream. Uh, so before that, what was happening is people were doing silicon photonics development at small foundries in countries like Singapore, um, you know, where they're, they're doing maybe 200 millimeter smaller wafers. And this was a very kind of niche uh, situation. You didn't have the maturity of um, the, the microelectronics market where you, you call up TSMC, you have some amazingly complicated system to build, and they guarantee that they're going to deliver it with, with high yield on 300 millimeter wafers with low cost. And so over the past five to 10 years, that's kind of the state that we've gotten to um, with silicon photonics. Um, speaking of like TSMC, you know, they're, they're actually working on silicon photonics. There's also global foundries. It's really becoming mainstream, and it's that stability, high volume manufacturing, and and sort of reliability of, of that supply chain that, that's really enabled the massive growth that you're starting to see in silicon photonics. In the intro, we, we mentioned the, how, how vital chip-to-chip -chip communication is and the role silicon photonics plays that way. Um, there's a chip shortage, and it's been well-documented. And you have a unique perspective from the platform of, of your current position. What's your take on the chip shortage and how is it impacting uh, the work that you're doing or, or trying to perform? Yeah, so uh, there are a lot of components that go into building computer chips. Um, so, so imagine that you have a wafer. That wafer is going to get uh, cut up into small chips and those chips are going to get packaged. And uh, a lot of the packages that you might build will use laminates uh, and other technologies. And then those pieces go on to ultimately like a printed circuit board uh, into a socket and the printed circuit board has all sorts of components. So the picture I'm trying to paint is that there are a lot of pieces that go into uh, building up uh, compute and communications and even LIDAR components. And those components right now are in short supply. 
Um, so, you know, in terms of what we see at Light Matter, there are components that we're interested in using that have 50 week lead times. Um, it's kind of funny to talk about weeks in that, in that scale, but it's like a year. Um, and so you have to be really careful about timing uh, your product announcements and releases. Um, and, and it's a problem that I think the government is aware of. Uh, the Biden administration has been talking about uh, really looking into that problem and trying to figure out um, what the limitations are and, and why we're currently at this point. But it's, it's a challenging problem and, and something that needs to be worked out quickly. Speaking with Nick Harris, he's founder and CEO of Light Matter. And one of the other neat mentions that you've given me here is that you're increasing bandwidth, you're making computers better, and you're doing it without optical fibers. Why is that? Yeah, so we're developing two products at Light Matter. So we, we've built a, an optical computer. Um, it's called Invise, and that product announcement will be happening uh, next week, which is about the 9th, so March 9th. Um, but we also have a new way for computer chips to talk to each other. And, and we invented that out of necessity. It just turns out that optical computers are so fast that uh, standard protocols for communicating with chips are not going to be able to cut it. And so we developed a wafer scale optical interconnect. Um, and what that means is that you can have many, many miniature waveguides in the space of a single optical fiber. Uh, that allows you to, to go a lot faster and use a lot less energy. When you look at packaging uh, systems with optics inside, one of the principal costs is attaching optical fibers to those chips. And that's really the mainstream way that people are looking at connecting things up. With what we're doing, those waveguides are built into the platform. There's no fiber attached required, so it removes that packaging cost and complexity. And, and it really just enables um, ultra high speed communication between heterogeneous computer chips. So CPUs, GPUs, optical processors, memory, uh, name your kind of chip. Um, so that's, that's something that's really important for us on our roadmap. And we think something that will enable a lot of high performance computing applications. You mentioned that roadmap. What's, uh, what's horizontal for Light Matter? Where's the company going and uh, what's next? Yeah, so we're announcing our products uh, next week, uh, and we're going to be announcing our optical compute platform uh, for ultra high performance machine learning inference. Um, the products targeted at data centers, uh, you know, companies like Google Cloud, AWS, Azure, and so on. Um, so, so that's kind of what we're working on right now. We're really excited to get that out into the market. Uh, it's it's been a pretty challenging tech development problem, but you know, we're there and, and we're excited for people to try it. So, so it's this go-to-market motion that we're focused on uh, right now. Congratulations on the developments. Uh, keep up the good work, the hard work, and thank you so much, Nick, for, for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That does it for this episode of All Things Photonics. Thank you to our engineer, Alan Shepard, and to Joel Williams with the news. Our featured music is courtesy of betterwithmusic.com. Most of all, thank you, our listeners. As always, you can share your thoughts, pitch us ideas, let us know how we're doing. You can reach us at allthingsatphotonics.com. All Things Photonics is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as on our website. Subscribe, never miss an episode. I'm Jake Saltzman. This has been a Photonics Media Production.